0: Just before we start, our book this week is Night Crawling by Leila Motley. It contains references to violence that some people might find upsetting. It also talks about sex work, which might not be a suitable topic for younger listeners. Hello and a very warm welcome to this meeting of the Graham Norton Book Club. Let's get our chairs in a circle and pass around the Jaffa Cakes because the first item on the agenda, well, actually pretty much the only item, is plenty of top-quality talk about some fascinating stories. Joining me to keep the proceedings moving briskly along is the marvellous Sarah Collins. Hello, Sarah Collins.
1: Hello, Graham. Lovely to be in the bookish chair with you again.
0: Well, it must be nice to be in a bookish chair because you've been in a director's chair. Well, not a director's chair, but you know what I mean. You've been on set, haven't you?
1: Set. Yes, Franny, the TV series has finally aired and we've got it all out of our hair, all done and dusted. I mean, you must
0: feel, you know, a little, your your child is out in the world.
1: <laughs> My child is behaving well. Yes, I do. There's a, it's a a bit it's a bittersweet, but I've been dying, as you know, to see the back of Franny Langton for a very long time. So I also feel hugely relieved that it's all finished. And am I, am I dreaming this?
0: Are you staying in the world of screenwriting now?
1: I am. I'm actually writing a horror now, Graham. Things that go bump in the dark.
0: Don't, don't. Stop it. Not for me. I will not be watching that. <laughs> uh, very good. Let's get down to business. Our book this time is Night Crawling by Layla Motley, who started writing it when she was 17. You heard me. Making her the youngest ever Booker nominee when it was long listed in 2022. It's a story of a young girl forced to go onto the streets to provide for herself and her family, and who gets caught up in the dark workings of a corrupt police force. Who to discuss it are our clubbers, Cherie, who chose it for us, Sheevan, Katie, and Gerard. Hello, everybody.
1: Hi, Graham. Hi. Hi. Hello.
0: Hi. And it's a welcome back to Gerard. And uh, Gerard, am I right in thinking you've gone even deeper into the world of books since I last spoke to you?
2: Yeah, I've fully left the healthcare business and fully entered the bookselling one. Okay. Congrats. Thank you. Are you in a bookshop or are you in a book online thing? What is it? Yeah, I'm in a bookshop in central London, um, serving many, many customers and talking to the occasional author. And more more news of employment. Uh, Shivan, I believe you've
0: had
3: a promotion. I, I have. I had a, I had a double promotion A oh, double wow. promotion? There, there, there was no competition for the job, Ooh. so it's, it's, let's not get overexcited. But still, you. you at least you got it. <laughs> Sheevan, are you
1: headmaster now?
3: I'm not. I'm a few rungs from that one. <laughs> I'm a deputy curriculum leader.
0: Deputy curriculum leader, ladies and gentlemen. A round <laughs> of applause. <Woo-hoo>! Thank yeah. <laughs> and I should warn listeners that if in the discussion Cherie is speaking very quickly, it's because you've got somewhere to be, haven't you? Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I've got a date. I won't reveal his name. It's not because he's famous. It's because I'll probably never see him again <laughs> after tonight. But I'm just being realistic.
5: Brutal.
0: So it's a first date, or are you dumping him tonight?
4: Could be both. It's a first date. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I haven't had one for a while, so I'm a bit. I'm a bit rusty. I'll just talk about this book. Yeah. I'll repeat yes. the conversation that I've had with you guys.
0: I'm not sure Night Crawlings a first date book. <laughs> 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 Katie, <laughs> any news? Any happenings in your life?
6: Uh, I got a tattoo randomly, just because I'm, you know, having midlife crisis at the ripe age of thirty-two. <laughs> I've always wanted one, and I just was like, screw it. It's quite a big one, and I. It is, is quite big. <laughs> what is it? And <laughs> is it is that a ball it's of a, yarn? It's a tarot card design, but hilariously, my partner's dad is quite Catholic in a sort of very lapsed way, but it looks like a pentagram, and so he's. Oh very, very, very worried suddenly that I've got like devilish symbols carved on my skin. (laughs) I think I've suddenly taken about five years of a step backwards with Barry. There's a satanic lesbian
0: (laughs) upstairs. I know, he's like crossing himself. He's like, oh my God. (laughs) Uh, Well, that took a dark turn. Uh, All right, everybody, contain yourselves. You'll come to find out whether night crawling was top of your shortlist or didn't make it past the first round of judging after we've spoken to Layla Motley herself and after the prize-winning Sarah Collins has given us her three of the best. And you're sticking with the competition, I believe.
1: Yeah, well, because Leila Motley was the youngest ever author long-listed for the Booker Prize, which made me feel thoroughly inadequate, (laughs) I have to say. I mean, what were you doing at age 17? Um, I thought I'd have a think about my favourite Booker winners.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm keen to find out if I agree with your three favourites. More importantly, here's something I've never heard anyone say before. If you want the truth,
7: go to a comedian. Spike Milligan's ribald memoirs of his time as a conscripted man in the Royal Artillery make an interesting point. As part of the First Army, which had fought a rushed action to try to stop the Germans establishing themselves in Tunisia, and then tried to squeeze the German armies between itself and Eighth Army, advancing from the East, Milligan's battery had been in action almost constantly, and when not fighting, it had been on the move. His memoirs fondly recreate the easy humour in the battery and clearly illustrate the men's attitudes to the war. It's quite clear that patriotism is low down their list for fighting.
0: You probably know Al Murray as a successful stand-up and the congenial pub landlord. More recently, though, he's been showing his historical side and he'll be telling me about his new book, Command, How the Allies Learned to Win the Second World War later on in Talking Books. Right, let's turn to night crawling. Leila Motley is from Oakland, California, which is where the book is set, inspired by a real case. Kiara is 17 and she's struggling. Her father is dead, her mother in a halfway house, and her brother Marcus is trying to be a rap artist and failing. Nobody is helping her pay the rising rent. Plus, she's the only person standing between her nine-year-old neighbour Trevor and the care system. She's determined to keep things together and turns to sex work. She soon numbers many of the Oakland Police Department amongst her clients, even though they know she's underage. Then, one officer names her in his suicide note, and she's asked to turn state witness to expose the sexual misconduct and corruption rife in the force. But where will that leave her and the young boy she's trying to protect? Layla Motley was 2018 Oakland Youth Poet Laureate, but this is her first novel. Booker long-listed, have you mentioned that? It was also an Oprah book club pick, fancy. A lot has been made about how young she was when she wrote it. And I was interested to find out, given when you're that young, three years can include a lot of growing up, how it felt looking back on something she created at a different stage in her life.
8: There's definitely a distance. I'm 20 now. I just turned 17 when I wrote the majority of the book. And it definitely feels like 17-year-old me um, kind of encapsulated in this breathing thing that now has come out when I was 19. And it's interesting. It's, it's a strange experience to be talking about something that represents a person that like I'm not anymore.
0: So Cherie Millington is the clubber who chose Night Crawling for us to read, and she has some questions. First of all, she's asking about the origins of the book, and we know it was inspired by a real case of, of police corruption. What made you decide, yes, this could be a novel?
8: Well, I was born and raised in Oakland. I still live in Oakland, California. And in 2016, this huge case broke and it it kind of consumed our local media um, and kind of the whole city. This young woman, um, she was a minor at the time. She was sexually exploited by different barrier police officers. And I remember, you know, kind of listening to people talk about it, you know, watching the local news, and the conversation was primarily focused on the police officers and, like, what this case's impact would have on the police department and not on on this girl or the systemic implication of so many young girls and, and women being sexually abused by people in authority, that kind of stuck with me over the years. And then I was I was kind of starting to think about writing a, another book. And I wanted to tell the story of teenage black girls. And I wanted to tell a story about kind of our vulnerability and what it means to be unprotected um, in this world. And that ties in so, so closely to to police sexual violence. And then to this case, which ended up just kind of forming the seed for the novel.
0: And Kiara's voice, I'm interested uh, how you found her voice, because obviously, she's this young woman living in Oakland. So there's a, a colloquial element to her voice. But also it's a literary voice, you know, she's writing a book, she's using metaphor, and, you know, and, and she writes beautifully. Um, how did you strike that balance between those two voices?
8: I mean, part of it is the the distinction between her internal voice and her external voice, right? So, I think part of what I wanted to show was we rarely allow teenagers, particularly Black teenagers, the kind of ability to to have complex internal worlds, and so I wanted Kiara to be able to have like really nuanced um, kind of reflections on the world happening inside her brain, and and we you know we read it in first person we get to see all of that but then if you if you look at the actual dialogue in the book like she rarely says much and that kind of reflects the the silencing of of black teenagers and and black girls in particular i mean i think this is this is true to how most of us speak right there's so much more going on that we never say and that you know our voice can can sound very different when we speak than than the way it does in our heads
0: And the story, you know, obviously elements of this story are so grim and moving and upsetting. And yet there are lots of kind of moments, sort of very sweet domestic moments, like when she's doing the little boy Trevor and things like that. Did you put them in for the reader, if you know what I mean? (laughs) Did you just kind of think, "I I need to soften this somehow. I need to help the reader through this book.
8: No, actually, I think a lot of it for me was kind of building out Kiara's whole experience her whole world and we we can't see a person as their complete selves if we don't see the the kind of spectrum of their experiences and that includes you know mundane moments like making pancakes and it includes grief and it includes you know fatigue and all of these things that end up in making a character feel human to us um, but for me a huge part of it was just getting to know Kiara and and getting to know her being beyond what maybe we might see as the most important thing about her which is what other people do to her um and i think that so much of this book is is seeing her as more than that um and seeing her as you know a kid and and so much of seeing her as a kid is about experiencing these moments where she is just a teenager or she's playing with Trevor in the pool and that like that's a that's an experience that we can link so closely to childhood and and I think that as people, we're always trying to, you know, find moments of something, moments of joy, moments of love, even if we're enduring some of, you know, the most impossible things.
0: I want to talk about uh, men in this book because certainly the, the the policemen, they're kind of, you know, monstrous. Those men are monstrous. Uh, you know, her brother Marcus is, you know, failing her throughout. Um, and yet you never seem to demonize the men. There's a great phrase in the book where you compare men's hearts to the moon, uh, sometimes waxing, sometimes waning. Um, Was that a deliberate thing, that you weren't going to turn the men into monsters?
8: We see all of the police officers. We don't know their names. We know them by their badge numbers. For me, that was really important because it allows us to see kind of the the Black characters in this book as central. Um, and in the way that we often hear news reports about the killings of of Black people by police, we often hear the names of the police officers. And instead of that, I just wanted them to be kind of like these nameless figures, the book is is centered on Kiara's world, right? And so we see men the way that she sees them. Um, and I think that a lot of it is about the way that that girls are socialized um, to care for men and to see men's needs as kind of the most important thing. And so we see her, you know, kind of work to, to take care of Marcus, her brother, and Trevor, the, the little boy next door, and even all of these police officers, her brother's friend, friends she is kind of her whole life is is in pursuit of of caring for these men and we understand them then through this kind of lens of you know this is the way that they were taught to to survive and that doesn't mean we can't be angry at the the ways in which they fail kiara but i do think a huge part of it for me was balancing out you know the ways that we see systems reverberate through people and so much of the the way that men behave in this book is is because of the way men are taught to behave and um, and how that ends up impacting Kiara
0: and now Sheree has a question she wants to know where do you hope Kiara is after the ending of the book you know are you hopeful for her or do you think she's sort of doomed to drift back into to poverty and danger
8: in the beginning of the book, it's kind of, everything feels inevitable. We we kind of know what direction she's going down. Whereas by, by the end of this novel, like, we end up feeling unsure. And that means there's possibilities. That means she has options. And she might be able to make choices. And I think... I I try not to to like also do that kind of what happens right after the last page um, because for me the most important thing is that we have that question and that we at least feel as though she could have something different than she has had before.
0: And this is some questions we ask everybody uh, that we talk to. So let's start with the book that turned you on to reading. Did you grow up in a very booky mm-hmm. house? Were you that Mm -hmm. sort of kid?
8: Yeah, I I always loved to read. Uh, I think it took me a while to find books that like really resonated with me. And I think the first one that I loved was Sassafras, Cypress and Indigo, which is by Ntozaki Shange, who's best known for um, the play for colored girls. Um, And yeah, that that book like just changed the way I thought about reading.
0: Uh, Tell us about a book that you love that you think more people should know about.
8: Um Men We Reaped by Jasmine Ward which people like know about Jasmine Ward she she's won the National Book Award twice um but I think very few people have read Men we reaped at least um, people who love Jasmine Ward maybe have um, and she's definitely my favorite author and I I love this book so much it's her memoir and it's about five black men that were her friends or, or family um, who died within I think like five years or so in her her hometown and uh it's like a beautiful kind of contemplation and grief and gender and uh, like all of these things it's stunning
0: that sounds gorgeous Mm -hmm. and tell me this is there a book that you love so much you wish you'd written it
8: Uh, I try not to wish that I have written any book because I think that ends up messing with my head. But I mean, I think any Toni Morrison novel, we all wish we were that brilliant. (laughs) Um, Especially Song of Solomon is just like very intricately crafted. And I, I, I don't know how she did it.
0: Layla Motley talking about her idol Tony Morrison and her own a spectacular debut novel, Night Crawling. Zara, getting a booker nomination for something you wrote when you were 17, I mean, that's just an enormous thing, isn't
1: it? I mean, yeah, it did kind of make me rethink my misspent teenaged years. What was your sort of top achievement at 17, Graham? I'm trying to remember mine. I think mine was getting my driver's license.
0: You've already outdone <laughs> me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, I no achievement. I think it's
0: good to save achievements till you're older.
1: <laughs> you have something to work up yeah. to. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, so we're talking about Booker and we're talking winners. So top three, go.
1: One of my top three actually happens to be last year's winner. It's The Promise by Damon Galgut. He's a South African novelist. Um, and this novel uh, takes place over the course of four family funerals, which are 10 years apart. And it's the narrative framework for telling the story of one white South African family during and after apartheid. So the action centres on a dispute promise which one of the daughters of the family claims was made to their black maid to give her the house she lives in on the family's land. And they fall out about this. I mean, all families have to have something to fall out about, and they fall out about this promise, Uh, sometimes hilariously, and sometimes with agonizingly tragic results. And Reading it, you come to realise that the family is kind of standing in as a microcosm for South Africa itself. So you get a broad state of the nation sweep to the novel. But what I love about it is that it's really marvellously readable because you see all of that politics very firmly through the prism of the personal. And somehow that kept it from being too bleak and too miserable for me, even though we all know the benchmarks of South African history are often difficult to swallow. At its heart, it's a family drama and it's immersive and really deeply moving.
0: Oh, good. I've got that. I haven't read it yet, so look forward to that. Uh, Further back, winners...
1: Further back. Well, actually, I'm not even going that much further back. Obviously, the booker made no impression on me until, <laughs> until the 2020s, because <laughs> I'm just hopping back two years to Shuggy Bain by Douglas Stewart, which won in 2020. And this is a coming-of-age story. Uh, It's about a young boy growing up in 1980s Glasgow with a mum who's essentially drinking herself to death. You must have read this one, Graham.
0: I know I so have read it, but what amazed me was what a huge, popular, best-selling booker winner this was.
1: Even though it's essentially just bringing you face-to-face with poverty and alcoholism and abuse and domestic violence and, you know, Margaret Thatcher's 1980s, like all the horrors of human existence. Um, And why? When I recommend it to people, I say this is the most miserable book you'll ever love. And it's true. It is really miserable. But it's one of those books that illuminates for me anyway, the dark side of humanity. Sometimes reading a book like that can feel cathartic. I think it works partly because it's an autobiographical novel. I don't know if that was your view as well. Douglas Stewart, such a he's got such a fierce intelligence and obviously a really good soul. And it benefits from the complexity and balance you get, I think, when it's sort of based on the truth of lived experience. The people aren't two-dimensional, which is a big complaint I have in novels that are all about suffering.
0: It's also saved, I think, by seeing it through the eyes of a child. Yes. You know that that child becomes an adult. So something good has to have happened. He survives. Yeah. And your final choice?
1: This one does take us a bit further back into the past and much, 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 much more serious. It's The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy, won in 1997. In fact, it was her debut novel and then her only novel for about 20 years, which um, gives me some hope until she wrote her follow-up in, I think, 2017. Another story about very hard things uh, this episode. This time it's the caste system in India. Uh, this one is set in Kerala it follows a set of fraternal twins and they're trying to make sense of a family tragedy, their spoiled young English cousin has drowned in a lake on the family estate and we get their childlike perspective on this but we also get their adult perspective because the story toggles between the 60s and the 90s and I remember the feeling of reading this back when it was published was like sort of peeling off layer after layer of sadness but also that the heaviness of the material was lightened by the most marvellous, gorgeously playful language. Arundhati Roy has this real knack for wordplay and punning and kind of mashing together the most highbrow and lowbrow things you can do with language, I think. It's full of vivid and evocative and sensory detail, but it's just also full of bonkersness.
0: Uh, Thank you very much, Sarah Collins. And if you're keen to find out what all the fuss was about, but we're too busy getting red carpet ready to write down Sarah's recommendations, just visit the Amazon Audible website, search for the Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all of the books that get mentioned on the podcast. Well, now for a little night-crawling. The book club members joining us to talk about it are ex-bookseller, now literary agent, Katie Blagden. Hello. Hi. We've got teacher and YouTuber, Sheevan Davis. Hello. Hi, Graham. Uh, book blogger and now bookseller, Jared Leachman. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Good. And fashion writer, Ladies Lit Squad founder and northerner in the South, Sheree Millington, who suggested Night Crawling for us to read. Uh, Cherie, what inspired you to share the book? How did you discover it?
3: Do
4: you know what? This, it's a terrible story because I just can't remember it. It was on a pile.
0: It's not a story.
4: <laughs> it was by chance I picked up knowing nothing about it. And I just raced through. I thought it was fantastic. Only later did I find out that the author was 17 when she started writing it. I had no idea. Um, but I thought it was a, a very refreshing uh, new voice in literature, The character Kiara was so well-rounded out and the kind of her rich inner workings... And then the way she kind of communicated with everyone in the story was a bit more monosyllabic. As you do when you're a teenager, you've got all these thoughts and feelings, but when it comes to communicating with everyone else, you just either can't be bothered or you don't know how. But yeah, I loved our main character.
0: I mean, we'll stop talking about how how young she was in a a minute, but Sheevan, as an educator of young minds, were you astonished that a 17-year-old could could produce work of this quality?
3: Yeah, I was. I I didn't realise how young she was until after I read it, which makes it all the more more impressive, I think. I mean, it, it's certainly a very authentic voice. And I suppose the fact that she's 17 when she writes it, that makes sense. I just thought it was very well written. And the character is so well rounded that it carries the whole novel along. KG, were you a fan? I mean, I can't overstate how much I love this book. There's so much pleasure
6: in the writing. Her writing is so talented, and so gorgeously done. And it's so poetic. And then she does have this sort of like really authentic, as Sheree was saying, that real authentic teen voice of like, I'm not really sure how to communicate with people because I am 17. And then the plot, though, is amazing, you know, which is a really nice surprise to me in a way because I sometimes have a reverse snobbery with Booker-esque books where I'm like, this is going to be very worthy and well-written, but will it be a good story? Maybe not, which... I maybe mean, maybe I'm being very unfair on the Booker list.
0: And Jared, what did you think of the, the voice? Because the speaking voice is really believable, uh, but her inner voice is is quite literary. Did, did that work for you?
2: Yeah, I, I agree with everything everyone said so far. I thought the writing was really beautiful. Um, it was a weird one because again, I didn't do any research before. I like going in blind. I think I glanced at the back of the book, saw that an author called Kiese Laymon. I think his name is. He wrote a book called Heavy, which I loved. Um, So on the back of him liking this book, I was like, okay, I'm ready for this. I thought her, her narrative voice reminded me of the book Heavy. Like the way the poetry came out in her writing was very reminiscent of that book to me. And I was just thinking, this is phenomenal. It did work so well because her being 17 and then obviously the character also being 17. Sometimes it's really difficult to write about someone who's your own age because you don't have that kind of older perspective to look back at yourself. But she seemed to have that yeah. at the age of writing it, which I thought was just brilliant. I thought it was a beautifully mm. written book.
0: Yeah, You're right. that It is extraordinary the way she can do that. Um, look, it's been alluded to how uh, bleak a lot of the story is, a lot of the setting is. Was it too much for you, Sheevan? Or did she find enough things to kind of lighten it?
3: I found it very hard going because it is such a grim subject. And it's not a book I would run home to and joyously open and carry on reading. But I did find it really moving. So, you know, I was carried by the emotion of the story. Um, but just by the fact that I think Kiara as a character is so convincing and the relationships she has with other characters are also so well drawn because you've, I've, I found myself really disliking the brother, for example, Marcus. But then equally, I was very moved by the relationship with her and Trevor. So I think she's a brilliant writer for painting very real-life situations, real-life relationships. So, yeah, I think the, the moments that are dark are eclipsed by the lighter moments and, and the more tender moments between her and Trevor.
0: Yeah, those almost kind of, she writes almost kind of domestic scenes with, with Trevor, like them making the cookies and everything. What was your response to those, Katie? Did you think they were just there to to kind of <laughs> the sugar on the pill?
6: No, not at all. I think it's really important to see like, I mean, it is a little bit of sugar on the pill in terms of it is clearly like such a dark set of events in this story. And there are, there is an element sometimes where you're like, oh God, it's just getting worse for her. Oh my God, this poor girl. But at the same time, I do think seeing her in these moments, there was a lot of joy weirdly in her life between her and Trevor and her and Ole and even her and Marcus at times, despite the fact that Marcus, you just want to give him a right old shake and just be like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Get out of the basement and help her. And, I think for me, I found it heavy going in terms of it's clearly hugely emotional, but completely a different reaction to Shiva, where I was sat up at night reading this because I couldn't put it down and I was enjoying it so much. There was something really enjoyable about living in her world, even though it is so bleak. She's just such a gorgeous character. You just fall in love with her, you know?
3: But I think that's why I struggled to read it though, because I think what happens to her is so horrible and so um, shocking that I found it you know, gut-wrenching at times. I really had to kind of walk away from it.
1: I was going to ask whether anyone else was annoyed by the Marcus characters. I think that's the one note that didn't quite ring true for me. I couldn't figure out if a real human being would actually be so, so yeah, useless and unresponsive or whether he was a character who had just been designed that way to serve the plot.
2: Yeah, I think I agree with you on that.
1: That was just the, my slight quibble with the sort of overall scheme of the novel. I thought he was true to life.
6: <laughs> yeah, same. I... I would say, I feel like I constantly come on here and talk about my brother and sort of use it as therapy. So I really, really <laughs> hope he doesn't listen to this. Okay.
1: But
6: I do think sometimes there's an element where, like, siblings, you have these really strange relationships. And, you know, I, I thought that felt really real. Yeah, I agree. My brother's lovely.
0: FYI. <laughs> talk to us about the other men in the book, though, because I think Kiara, in a way, she never condemns or judges yeah. the men as much yes. as we do as as readers, I which
3: I found I kind of odd. Mm. But isn't that because she's justifying her, the trade? She's not judging the clients because she's trying to pretend that she's an adult who can operate in this dark world of prostitution, so therefore the, the, it's not such a terrible crime that these men are committing to her because she's trying to be this adult operating in in this underground economy.
4: See, I disagree, actually, with that. I don't think she's trying to justify what she's doing. I think it's that she just has a disdain for these men. If you, you think she's grown up in a predominantly like black and Hispanic community... In those communities, I mean, you don't like the police. You don't like white men, probably. You don't have any respect for them. So I think it's quite true to life the way that you never hear their names and the way that she kind of can compartmentalise and... The same way that they do for her, which is like a level of disrespect and disdain, she has for them. And that is kind of what she expects of them.
0: I think people listening to this who haven't read this book, they will think this book is so plot heavy and it's quite a small book. Uh, What did you think, Gerard?
2: Does the plot work? So um, when I was reading it, I think it was like midway through where I found out that it's based on a real story. Um, so I started doing some research and listening to some interviews, um, with uh, the real woman it's based on when you listen to her story and you compare it to the story in the book, I think the real life story is way more nuanced. Her real story of being tricked and messed around at 16 and thinks that she's in love with these guys. And then later on, she realizes that they are just taking advantage of her. And I think in the book, there was that kind of, we hate the police, we don't trust the police. It's like that black and white, we could have been drawn deeper into this with that kind of complexity of the real life situation just explored a little more, especially with like the brother Marcus, I want to agree with you, um, Sara, on I don't think there was any positive um, representation of black men. There was the friend of her
3: brother. He was at at least protective of her. Yeah, but he wanted to be with her. That wasn't like... Yeah,
2: but I think he yeah. cared about her as well. I mean, he did walk away from her and let her be a prostitute. Yeah. Also, so. But then so did the brother.
3: Yeah, no, I <laughs> agree. <Yeah>. <Like, laughs> I don't know if you can call that a positive representation. There is a limit
4: to the caring. <laughs> He's a 10, but he lets you walk away and be a prostitute. Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I find this more interesting because I think we've heard that narrative where... You know a young girl's in love with a, a teacher, sorry, Siobhan. Or, <laughs> yeah, or, you have or to a apologize every time the word teacher comes up. That gives it, it puts the onus on, on the girl like she's been hoodwinked. I like that yeah. Kiara went into this with her eyes open, but she was hoodwinked, wasn't she, at the start? She was, but I do like how she had no illusions, like she didn't fall in love with these men, she knew what she had, you know, got herself in for.
3: But she tried to see it as a transaction, right? Initially, was, and then you have this horrendous scene where she, you know she's um, sexually assaulted in one of the first client she has. yeah. I don't think she realises what she's getting into. I think that's one of the tragedies of the book, is that she's actually getting into a profession that's incredibly degrading and dangerous.
6: I have to say, I think, just following on a little bit from Cherie, though, I think one of the interesting things about this is that Leila Motley gives Kira so much agency and so much internal life that it's not like a sort of, as Cherie said, it's not this sort of like very simple narrative of like, oh, and she's an innocent young girl who gets
4: hoodwicked. She's like an active protagonist in her own yeah. story. She doesn't make the right decisions all the time, but she is actively making those decisions. You chose to go into this extremely dangerous situation
6: and it makes her more of a person, or an actual real person and a character rather than some sort of cliche sort of thing we've seen before.
1: It's interesting that you saw it as a choice though. Is it a
2: choice? She couldn't get a job.
1: It's it, The implication is that she's left with no choice. I mean, it's essentially that or death because there's no, there's absolutely no yeah. avenue open to her to pay bills, keep a roof over her head or buy anything to eat. Um, But I suppose that's the skill of the writer is making the reader feel that there was agency even where there wasn't any.
0: Um, Listen, uh, I've loved talking about this book, but we must get to the part of the podcast where we ask you for scores. How likely are you to recommend this book to a friend out of 10? I will start with you, Katie.
6: It's a 10 from me, 100%. Like genuinely, genuinely, I think it is an astonishing piece of writing. I can only be in awe of her as a writer. And I think the plot and the story is just incredible. It's Genuinely, I think everyone should read this. It's amazing.
2: Uh, Gerard? I'll give it an eight, I think, because, um, again, I agree 100% on the writing. Um, I'm not sure if everyone would be happy with how grim the subject is, but I do think it's important to read these stories. So I definitely, yeah, an
3: eight. And Sheevan? I would give it a seven I think I I did enjoy it I don't think it's as well written as people have said it is and I think there's some elements of the novel that didn't quite work as well as other parts and I wasn't swept away as much as other people were but I did still think it was a strong debut novel definitely
0: and I'm always interested, would you recommend this to, say, the A-level students, the, your students who are the age of these protagonists?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think this is a really interesting novel that explores kind of gender politics, third-wave feminism. I think there's so many interesting points they can tease out of this novel. Um, and it's very relevant as a contemporary novel about the state of uh, the American city as well.
0: OK, and finally, Cherie, big scores I'm expecting here. How likely are you to recommend this to a friend?
3: Well, firstly, I'm really glad that I feel redeemed
4: from last season when my book was Jilly Cooper Riders, which everyone hated. What a contrast. Talk about (laughs) two extremes, (laughs) Cherie. Two female authors. But um, yeah, I think how often do you get to read such a young female black author and such a good book. So for that reason alone, I will give it a 10. I've already bought the book and given it to a friend, and it's brilliant. Read it.
0: Well, thank you very much for choosing it, Cherie. Time to find out what we'll be discussing next time, and it is the turn of Katie. Katie Blagdon, uh, what have you got for us?
4: Our
6: Wives Under the Seed by R Armfield. Its degree is lesbian, Lovecraftian, horror, <laughs> body scariness. You know, horrible stuff in the bath, submarines. I mean what's not to love
0: wow we are intrigued that was quite the elevator pitch (laughs) (laughs) our wives under the sea we'll be talking about that next time with katie in the meantime thank you clubbers all we'll see you along the way bye-bye thank
6: you Bye. bye
0: so it's time for talking books and i love a man in uniform general george smith patton is more than just a general more than
7: a mere commander, much, much more than a man in olive drab poring over maps in his tent. Or better still, in his boss's tent, pointing out where his boss has gone wrong. He's bigger than that. He's bigger, really, than anyone else in this book. He's huge. He's a totem, a self-created archetype. He's his own gold standard. He's a movie star. But again, he's more than that.
0: Patton is the star of his own movie. Al Murray is one of the UK's best-loved comedians, whose know-all pub landlord has been entertaining us by holding forth on topics he knows nothing about since the 90s. However, history is something that Al himself knows a lot about, and military history in particular. He and historian James Holland's hugely successful podcast, We Have Ways of Making You Talk, is so popular it has its own festival. Now, Al's written his first serious book, Command, how the Allies learned to win the Second World War, which is also voiced, which means we needed to find out more, obviously. Did writing the book come about as a result of the podcast?
7: Yes, it did. Yeah, it definitely came from the podcast. And then this this obvious giant gap in my diary that had been foisted on us by fate, you know. I've always not wanted to write a history book. I've always wanted to just enjoy history and consume it and be interested in it. The idea of writing the book is terrifying, completely terrifying.
0: And yet, I mean, people are taking it seriously. It's not a kind of like a, oh, it's okay for a a comic. It's like, this is a really good, erudite, uh, informative, entertaining book. You're clearly surprised
7: as I am. I mean, uh, uh, yes, the reception to it has been lovely. And I did, in the end, find it very rewarding to write and um, to try and also not write a book with battles in. And I, I didn't want to do that because I don't think I've got anything to offer retelling the story of what happened on D-Day or whatever. Or that doesn't interest me. The, the sort of the people and what what's going on in their heads and what people's priorities are is the thing that sort of, I think, really, really interests me.
0: And, you know, reading about you, obviously both your grandparents were very kind of involved mm. in, in the, the war, both sets of grandparents. Yeah. But lots of people of our generation had grandparents involved in the war and yet <laughs> haven't written a book about it. Well, yes. You know, when did the bug <laughs> really
7: bite? Well, it's my dad. My dad is responsible for this. My father, he was born in 1937, so he can tell you about there being no bananas and, and hiding under the kitchen table from doodlebugs. He could tell you that stuff. He's really, really interested in history. And in fact, he's done far more sort of primary source research than I have in his retirement. He's, he's, a, he's a historian. But I remember going on holiday to the D-Day landing beaches with him sort of walking us up a hill and saying, this is where this happened and all this sort of stuff. And I, I loved it. My mother knew her father. He was killed in the fighting outside Dunkirk. So that hung heavy over our family. Um, my grandmother, her brother died as well. So she lost her brother and her husband. It was this sort of elephant in the room. That must be partly what drove me to be so interested in it.
0: And when did you go public with your interest? Was it the History Channel? Was it the podcast? What was your first bit of kind of going, no, I am serious about this?
7: It was the thing I did for Discovery in 2004 called Road to Berlin, where um, at Discovery they had the bright idea that what they wanted was comedians to talk about history. And so I think... It was sort of Rory McGrath like pretended to be medieval for eight episodes. And I got assigned to the Second World War, which was like fantastic. So I had this amazing summer going from Normandy to Berlin and and we went to Moscow and we went all over Europe. And it was it was an amazing thing. But it's the podcast, really. I've You know, the last two years, I feel like I've been doing a master's in Second World War studies. I've read so much. I've done far more work on this than I ever did at university when I did a history degree. Far more engaged with the subject than I was though during those three years.
0: You've voiced James Holland's books, I know, and now you've done your own. What's the difference as a reader?
7: Well, is he going to listen to this? That's the big question. <laughs> James's books, fortunately, are extremely readable and leap off the page and a delight to read. My book, you're just sat there thinking, Whoa, oh, God, what fool wrote this? Oh, that doesn't make sense. Um, This argument's so weak. (laughs) Why did you think you could set this argument up and ever possibly follow it through? You're total fool. One of the big issues with writing this book was actually creating a prose style for it because I've written comedy books, I've written Pablanel books, and I wrote a misremembered history book of the 20th century last year. So I I have a comedy prose style, but not a like, um, right, okay, let's address the uh, questions of how the Allies coped with their material advantages. And, you know, I, I, I didn't have a style. So I tried to come up with something that was sort of snappy and there's humour in it, I hope, because that's the sort of book I'd like to read. You know, I've tried to write the book I'd like to read, basically.
0: And you talk about changing your writing style for this book, but your reading style has to be slightly modulated as well, because you don't want people to think you find this funny, if you know what I mean.
7: (laughs) No, 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 no. That's the absolute dead hand It's sort of you can hear the corner of your lip go up as you deliver what you think was the funny lines. You can't have that. No, I, mean, I did actually find the doing my audio book. There was the sort of first morning of torture and then I started to really enjoy it and really enjoy reading it. But I love reading audiobooks. books. I, I absolutely love it as a thing. And one of the things we've done with the podcast is we've a Patreon inevitably. And on that, I've been recording audiobooks of out-of-print memoirs. We've stacked up a load of stuff, and that was a real saving grace, having these books to sort of
0: bring to life. Wow, you are officially now the keenest audiobook reader. <laughs> we, we found you're doing it without being asked.
7: <laughs> well, like, yeah. Again, it's the depths of the pandemic, and, and you think, right, what am I going to do today? One of the things we've done as well is we've got some stuff republished that had gone out of print. So there's a book a friend of mine gave me. Because he would befriended the author in his church. He'd met this old guy. He said, oh, I, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I was a chindit, which is one of the chapters in the book, one of the episodes I write about in the Second World War. She's these people who went into the jungle in Burma in extreme hardship and tried to fight the Japanese, even though they were all ill and extraordinary and, and terrifying story. And I read it and then I read it as an audiobook on our Patreon and we've republished it. A book by a man called Richard Rhodes James called Chindit. And it's an extraordinary book.
0: And is Richard still alive? Did he live to see the book being
7: published again? No, he's not. Ah. But his widow, the day it came out, we went round and gave her
0: a copy. And, and so she's got a copy and the book lives on. Uh, there's some questions we ask everyone. Uh, was there a book that when you were a child turned you on to reading? And, and was it history? Was it fiction? What was it?
7: It was, I'm afraid, The Lord of the Rings. Oh. I went to boarding school and I always used, I used to get earaches in February. And tend to find myself laid up in bed for a week with a terrible earache. And one February, my mum had given me Lord of the Rings to take to, to school with me. And I read it Monday through Friday that week. To be honest, the school I went to, it was quite nice to be transported away from it. So I was a sort of willing willing transportee. <laughs> you know, <the laughs> Tolkien didn't really have to push that hard to get me to go away to Middle Earth. But I absolutely loved that book. and I, And I do occasionally revisit bits of it. It's a strange book, if nothing else.
0: Well, maybe that that's also the answer to this question. Is there a book that you turn to for comfort, a book you turn to in difficult times?
7: I don't know if it's comfort or difficult times, but because it's such an extraordinary book, and, and I have read it when times have been difficult, have gone back to it, and that's Catch-22, which is... The Joseph Heller novel, you know, from the 60s, which is about the Second World War. So I'm kind of on my easy slopes there, as it were. (laughs) But it's such an amazing comic novel. It's just such an extraordinary book. It was funny, rude, breathtakingly cynical, and also had this sort of extraordinary cut-up narrative.
0: Uh, The final book I want to hear about is one that you recommend a lot because you feel not enough people know about it.
7: Well, I don't know. That's a tricky question. It might be one of your memoirs. It
0: might be it might be Richard's memoir. We don't know.
7: Well, I would. Yes, I would actually say that at the moment, that's the book I've been pressing on people. Richard wrote James it because it's so personal, and he endured extraordinary hardship. And also, the, the the interesting thing about him is he was the signals officer in his brigade, so he knew what was going on. Because very often, soldiers' accounts of, of Stuff They don't know what's happening. They don't know what the name of the hill is they're on. They don't know who's to the left and who's to the right. They don't know anything about the big picture. And he knew what was going on. So he knew the extent to which they were courting disaster and the extent to which things might go completely pear-shaped. And he's carrying that around with him. He relies on his faith to get him through. And it almost made a believer of me.
0: Al Murray on Richard Road James chinned it as well as his own adventures in history. So now I know our particular train is about to chug into its final station. But before we alight, taking all our personal belongings with us, I see a woman with a whistle. Do people have whistles on trains anymore? Anyway, it is audiobook insider and chart maven Holly Newson to take us through some arrivals and departures on the what's hot list. Holly, what you got for us?
5: Do we have whistles on trains? I genuinely, it's a good it's I'm a sure I've heard question. a
0: whistle. I've heard, I may not have seen it, but it, it, the, you still hear them.
5: So first up, uh, one of the funniest books I've ever read. Read, which is, I know, a wow. big claim. Um, Parenting Hell by Rob Beckett and Josh Whittakin. Uh This pops up in the overall bestsellers, and the audiobook is on the most read non-fiction chart. Uh, the book tells the stories of parenthood from before Rob and Josh started their Parenting Hell podcast. Um, and this audiobook was one of the fastest selling, fastest reviewed, and rated ones ever. Uh, so definitely a big hitter. Um, And it's funny, even if you don't have kids or plan to have kids, uh, which is very good going.
0: That does sound remarkable, because it sounds like it's pretty targeted (laughs) (laughs) to a specific audience. Uh,
5: All right, the kids
0: are buckled up in the backseat. What's next on the ride?
5: Yeah, I think we should watch out for Ben McIntyre, who's popping up in various charts with various books. Ben is usually writing about history, and his most recent book, *Colditz: Prisoners of the Castle, is in a few of the charts. Uh, History, society, politics and philosophy, and on most sold non-fiction. And SAS Rogue Heroes, which is his book that came out about five years ago, has popped up on the most read and most sold non-fiction charts, and in the audiobook bestsellers, after a TV drama was made from the book last autumn. Uh, So his books are clearly having an impact on release and then have a lot of potential after that.
0: Isn't it interesting when you discover that there's this huge, untapped audience, all these people who want to read these books? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And uh, and a final one to look out for.
5: Uh, Yeah, finally, this needs to mention, as one of the only books to knock Prince Harry's spare off the top of the charts during pre-order... Uh, it's Elizabeth, an intimate portrait by Giles Brandreth. This is about Queen Elizabeth II, as you might have guessed. And it's doing very nicely on the biography charts. Um, as shouldn't really surprise me anymore, royals and anything about the royals are very good for book sales.
0: I know. The extracts I've read, it seems much more dishy and shocking than the Netflix series.
5: Ooh. I haven't actually dived into it. I'm ooh, curious.
0: I think Giles is not going to be invited back. I, I <laughs> <laughs> he can keep it, he can keep his good jumper in the drawer. He's not leaving the house. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much, Holly. Don't forget you'll find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible, and there they will be. <laughs> Our clubbers have got off to help Sheree plan her outfit and Sheevan to work out where he's going to put that tattoo so his six formers don't spot it, which means it just remains for me to thank Sarah Collins for being my date. Thank you so much. Are you still there?
1: Pleasure as always. Yeah, I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm waiting for you to pay the check.
0: <laughs> Hanging on. Yeah, let's go Dutch. Uh, please <laughs> join us next time when, amongst other things, we'll be talking about Katie's choice of our wives under the sea. And here's the thing, we'll have our first audiobook Co narrators. Yeah. Richard Armitage and Nicola Walker will be telling us about bringing to life Richard's debut novel, Geneva. Till then, happy reading and listening, and goodbye.
1: Goodbye. Yeah.